Hello, this is the Redaction Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Linkeri, and today I'm joined by James Moles, our contributing editor, and our reporters, Richard Hansen and Mason Kwa. How are we doing, guys? Yeah, good, mate. Just about recovered after that lengthy live stream. Yeah, gosh, that, we did it, didn't we? we? We hit our target for our live We stream. did. Yes, thanks, thanks very much, everyone, once again, for tuning in and chipping in. We did meet our fundraising target for Safe Passage UK, which was really, really generous of you. So thanks very much. Absolutely. And apologies for not being able to be present. I, uh, mm. my, my now 12 day old baby decided to come two weeks early. So I uh, had my hands full in other ways. Well, yeah. many congratulations, Richard. Thanks. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, was a small one of the one of the few things that I was thinking, damn, I wish I could have been a part of it. But uh, yeah, I'm glad it went well all the same. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've, we've got a big topic today. There's been a big story in, in the news, which we've, everybody's been following, which is the US election, of course. Um, many or most outlets now have now called it for Joe Biden. Um, um, I've checked the New York Times earlier today and they've called it saying that he'll get 306 electoral votes. That's calling it for, for the state of Georgia um, in Joe Biden's favour. Um, it looks like then if these results are going to turn out to be correct, it looks like Biden's flipped Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, lots of key battleground states. Um, first of all, what are your reactions to to the results? What, what do we make of Biden's win over Trump? Um, that just firstly that it was expected. Uh, and despite the fact that on Tuesday night into Wednesday morning, uh, pretty much all of liberal left-leaning Twitter sort of collectively melted down when, uh, yeah, when when Trump was called it, it was Trump when Trump won Florida and and was ahead in a number of key battleground states. Um, you know, we 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 spoke about it on this podcast that you know a lot of the election day returns are going to favor Trump, and then Biden is going to come roaring back over the next few days in the key places like Pennsylvania, like Georgia, like uh, like Arizona and uh, in, in, in uh, Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, so it was kind of as expected. I mean, obviously, the polls were slightly out. But again, it went to show that the polls could be out and Biden would still comfortably win. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was definitely a nice moment to see it called on. What was it? Saturday, Saturday afternoon, our time here. I think that is a point to be made is that a lot of people are framing this now as a sort of very comfortable win for Biden, which I'm not convinced it is Okay, okay. Like by the mechanics of the US electoral system. Obviously, if it were a just system, in my view, in which it's just a simple matter of who gets the most votes wins, obviously Biden would have won by a fair amount. But let's bear in mind in a few key swing states which swung it to Biden, there were some pretty close contests, often within a percentage point of each other. So mm -hmm. I think bearing in mind that context, this was a close election and far think, closer than it should have been. I think it's always going to be a close election, given the polarized, the polarized nature of the U.S. electorate. Um, but then, you know, you've got to play the get you've got to play the system which is in front of you. I mean, I think it's important to remember, you know, Biden has received what now 78 million uh, votes in the popular vote. I think he's leading Donald Trump by more than five million votes. Um, and Which is and record, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's received more votes than Obama did in 2008. Um, and so, and and I think as well, you know, you've mentioned it, James, a lot on on some of the other podcasts that he just needed to flip a certain amount of uh, votes in a certain amount of key states. You know, Donald Trump. If it wasn't for what thirty thousand votes across three states, Donald Trump wouldn't have won in 2016. Well, it was slightly more than 30,000, wasn't it? Not a significant mm. amount of, uh, amount of yeah. votes. Absolutely. You know, well, and, I, and, do and, think, well, uh, mm. I do think we need to look at the flip side of 
you know, uh, the records that's been shattered. Uh, Biden got more votes than any U.S. president in history. Donald Trump got the second most. I had to lie on the idea of getting, you know, like world record breaking turnout every four years. It's just not yeah. possible to keep that political momentum alive. Absolutely. And Donald Trump did do a good job, especially at the closing stages of the campaign, at turning out his own base. His own base was smaller than, than, than Biden's, of course, so there was only a certain amount of people that he could turn out. But he did do a good job at turning them out and making this a closer race. I mean, we talked about there was a poll, uh, what was it, 10 or so days before the election, which had Biden up 17 in Wisconsin. 17. And, and, he, and he carried the state by what, a point? Less than a point? I think it was um, less than a point. I'll just triple check while we're here. So, you know, I, th- I think we do need to talk about accuracy of the polls. I mean, they, the polls were wrong, quite wrong in a number of key battleground states. But also, but then again, they were quite correct in a number of others. They were pretty correct in Georgia. I think I owe you a beer, James. Um, they you were do. Pretty, they were pretty correct in Arizona. I'll clean that when I'm next up north. <laughs> Indeed. And, and, you know, and they were within the margin of error in Florida. Um, it was just in the Midwest that, uh, that the pollsters seemed to seem to miss by, by quite a substantial margin. I think. Yeah, here we here we have it. Joe Biden. This is Associated Press. Uh, Joe Biden, 49.6 percent in Wisconsin. Trump, 48.9 percent. That's less than a points difference. Mm, 0.7 percent. So you're only almost into recount territory there. And I mean, you know, having polls that are out, we had him almost 20 points a hit. Come on now. We need to start talking about uh, ways where we can perhaps accurately measure the mood of uh, of the country before an election moving forward. How close some of those races are does remind us that we need to be incredibly grateful to our allies and comrades in the Libertarian Party who managed mm. to lose several key swing <laughs> states for the Republicans. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But I mean, here's here's a question I have for everyone here. Interested to hear how what all your takes are on this. Was this Biden's win or Trump's loss? Um, I think it was it was Trump's loss, in my opinion, because there was a lot of ticket splitting that went on. I think, and this is probably not going to be a very popular opinion on this podcast, but I think the American people did largely reject the the ideas of the far left, uh, and and what they said is, well, we don't we don't like Trump. And we and we want to get rid of him. So and we're happy with with Biden. Um, but we want but they did pretty well in the Senate and they did pretty well in the House. I mean, there's every chance that they're going to have the majority in the Senate still, the re- Republicans, I mean. Um, so uh, I, I think in, in some ways it was Trump's loss, but the Republican Party's gain. I mean, I don't disagree that a majority of the American people are probably not on board with I mean, depending on where you're drawing the lines, they're far left politics for sure. Yeah. I mean, so when I say far left, I mean an American uh, American version of far left, which we, would, pro- which would include to... things like socialized medicine, which we here in the UK take for granted. Yeah, we do need to include the fact that, you know, Trump got a greater swath of the minority vote than he got four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, notably, he got a large amount of uh, Latin American and Cuban voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, delivered in, in Florida. Of, yeah. And that's uh, that's because, you know, they were scared of the big S word, the spooky, scary socialist Biden. Mm-hmm. They, they were coming to take your toothbrush. I mean, this I was... is, it is an interesting point that a lot of people have talked demographically about how Texas would be favorable to the Democrats in the long run because of the Latino yes. vote. But if that's the way the Latino vote's heading, then maybe Texas won't be in play in the next 10 years or so. I think that the, the Democratic Party need to look at the Latino vote and maybe not treat it as one ambiguous entity. Yeah, you know, there are Cuban Americans, there are Mexican Americans, there are you know, Panamanians, there are Colombians, and they, they they're not they don't all 
have one uniform way of looking at the world. Um, and so I think they probably need to spend the next four years just assessing that and how they address that. I did a, I did an interview with, uh, with an expert on, on this very topic very recently for redaction. Um, and we spoke about the demographic, uh, the market vote in this election. And what he said was exactly some of the words that you've just echoed, that you've just said, Richard, that the vote, the Latino vote, the, the minorities vote, it's so fragmented when you really look into it. It's not as easy to say the, the Latino vote goes Democrat the Latino vote goes, you know, goes Republican. It's so much more detailed than that, even state by state. Um, and what was really interesting, which um, maybe to get your thoughts on, was the actual migration within the states and how that is impacting where the votes go. So there's one there's one study which showed that a lot of Californians who, you know, when you look at the electoral map, heavily lean Democrat. Um, because of the rising cost of living, have moved to other areas of the US, um, particularly in the South, particularly in Arizona, which is actually one of the states that Biden flipped. So hmm. I thought that was fascinating how that demographic change, we actually saw that. And, you know, and Georgia, what a story that is, Georgia. You know, yeah, I, know. Tell you what, I mean, I, I obviously Rich and I had this bet on over Georgia, though. I will say this. If you told if somebody told me a couple of weeks before the election that Biden would win Georgia, but not North Carolina, I'd have laughed them out of the room. Yeah. And and equally, Biden wins Georgia and loses Florida. You'd only have to look at the uh, prediction article that I wrote for Redaction a couple of weeks earlier that's, that uh, got both of those predictions correct. But going, going back to your previous point, Declan, um, talking about Georgia, I think we need to talk about the uh, performance of Donald Trump in the suburbs. Uh, you know, the fact that he lost a large swathe of the electorate there. And I th- if you look at places like Maricopa County in, uh, in Arizona, which is the sort of suburbs in the surrounds of Phoenix, um, a similar thing happened. Um, and I, I do like to I did like to think of uh, John McCain um, up there somewhere looking down and thinking, goodness me, uh, Arizona now has two Democratic senators and uh, Democratic uh, a, a democratic state uh, you know john presidency. mccain john mccain likes presidential candidates who win arizona that's just <laughs> he, it he, does, he doesn't like losers in arizona <laughs> and he doesn't like donald trump at I, all. Can't, I can't take credit for that joke i'll just say that no i've seen that before but it definitely does ring true so mm. uh yeah it, it's it's a def, it's a very different electoral map um and it remains sure. to be seen how it's uh it's going to be moving forward well one one other state to bring up in that equation of course is ohio which it mm. was the first time since 1960 that Ohio has voted for the losing candidate. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there may be a long term trend here in which Ohio becomes more leaning towards the Republican column. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I'm not too sure about the, the changing demographics of the state, um, but I think there's probably something to be said about uh, Obama's ability to campaign successfully there. Um, I, I do wonder if if Ohio was fairly right-leaning anyway but we just haven't noticed it f- until now because obviously obama's not on the on the ticket i mean obviously they voted for george bush to uh, george bush twice in 2000 and in 2004 so uh yeah it uh, it very well could uh, could go redder than than neighboring pennsylvania and and uh, michigan wisconsin mm-hmm. um james i want to I pick up on something you said earlier you, you said it was closer than it should have been what do you mean by that more than 200,000 dead Americans. That's what I mean by that. How do we think Trump's handling of the pandemic factored into this? And how did Trump manage to hold on to such a large share of the vote in spite of that? I don't think people, I don't think as many people voted um, 
on pandemic issues as as we perhaps gave them credit for. I think more people voted for the economy. I think if you looked at the numbers of who is going to be, who is better for the economy, Donald Trump tended to best Joe Biden by maybe five or so points. Um, so I think on balance, people probably thought pandemic, economy. Well, we'll hopefully have a vaccine soon. And I know that's terrible to say, um, but it does seem that that's how they've um, how they've cast their vote. You're right. Obviously, yeah. Joe Biden still came out on top. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it shouldn't have been this close. If if we were only voting on the pandemic, it would have been an electoral landslide, in my opinion. I mean, I th- I think that's perhaps I think even that much is a bit bold. I think that you know it, even voting on the pandemic, there's a not insignificant portion of the Republican voter base that still see the coronavirus as a you know either uh, e- either a hoax or a statistical anomaly. You know, yeah, looking at each one of those each one of those deaths one at a time and saying, well, I mean, it's not anybody I know. 99.9% of people survive it. Yeah. And also, if you looked at the campaign strategies of both of the candidates, you had Trump saying, it's going to be okay. We're rounding the corner. It's fine. We're doing well. He was trying to project this positivity on, in, in the case of the pandemic. Conversely, you had Biden correctly, in my opinion, was saying, this is very serious. We need to listen to science. We need to wear a mask. But he was advocating for arguably re- reducing contact and, 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 and making it a bit more difficult on a daily basis. So I think on a sh- on that kind of shallow level, um, mm-hmm. certain people will have been like, well, I'm going to vote for the president because he seems to be a lot more upbeat about the situation. If the pandemic weren't such a big factor then, where was this Trump loss as opposed to it being a Biden win? Um, well, I think he was he was so far behind anyway. I mean, if we take the if we take the pandemic out of the situation, Trump wins, right? Um, but it but it was, likely, yeah. But if not for the pandemic, I think yeah, it was it, it managed to um, swing swing enough voters, but maybe not as many as we thought. Mm. Um, but also, I think there's there's something to be said about Joe Biden's uh, broad appeal. You know, figures like Cindy McCain. You know, uh, who, who endorsed him in Arizona, other, um, you know, members of the Lincoln Project who were uh, Republicans uh, who were very anti-Trump. He, I think he did carry a number of uh, moderate Republican Republican voters. Uh, and, and I think that did help him get across the line, especially in some of these key swing states. I think that is a critical thing to bear in mind is that Biden managed to successfully managed to create a broad coalition strategy. I'll get mm-hmm. on to this later in the podcast when we uh, bring a UK comparison up. Yeah, I think you're quite right. He managed to bring some moderate Republicans on side while simultaneously also keeping the left of the party on side. Yeah, that was critical. He managed to create a broad coalition. And that's why you saw him successful in places like Georgia. If you look at the fact that now we have a runoff uh, for both of the Georgia um, Senate seats, um, I would personally be I'm going to hang my hat on this. I'd be very surprised if the Democrats win one of them. Um, You know, I think the the US electorate is saying is saying, right, we need a we need some checks and balances here. Um, we're going to take Trump out of the White House, but we're not going to flip. We're not going to flip the Senate. We're not going to give the Democrats complete, complete control over this. Plus, which, the Republican base will turn out even more. Yeah. Oh, the, most likely. Most well, it's interesting. I saw I saw some tweets uh, earlier tonight from uh, from Kelly Loeffler, 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 the 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 senator the senator running for re-election in Georgia, um, it basically hanging her hat on on Trump as much as she can. And certain people coming out and saying, well, why are you hanging your hat on the lame duck president, the loser of the of of the election? And and people rightly commented, you know what, it's her best it's her best hope um, because there mm-hmm. are a, enough 
um, you know, enough enough of these base supporters that will turn out and support her to give to give Biden a, a check and a balance. And it remains to be seen how uh, how Biden governs as a result of that. Plus, it's and worth remembering that Trump still has a heck of a lot of support. Yeah, and they're we've not seen going... we've seen the people out on the streets. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, a million. Ke- Kayleigh McEnany said there were a million people marching for Trump. I'm not sure there's quite a million people. I mean, her and Sean Spicer need to have a heavy, heavy cup of something uh, when it comes to estimating crowd sizes. But uh, but, you know, there was not an insignificant amount of people that were that marched in, in Washington, D.C. And these people aren't going away. So, you know, Biden needs to figure out a way to, to kind of keep them keep them happy. Um, and it, yeah, I. I, I have I have confidence for Biden. You know, he has he spent a number of years in the Senate going across party lines. I mean, I know we say it's old Washington politics, you know, polarization. But it you've got to remember how 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 much Obama was despised by the Republicans. The Republicans don't despise Biden in the same kind of way. I think he is more likely to be able to get on with perhaps Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on certain issues. So maybe, maybe certain certain things will get done. Maybe. I mean, I think there may be another reason why the Republicans hate Obama. Let's face it. Sure, of course. Uh, just bald face, bald face racism, of course. Mm. Um, and you know that is that is the elephant in the room. Um, but that being said, he was still unable to get a lot of his legislative program through um, because of an obstructive Congress. Look at Merrick cool. Garland. You know, case in point, that you know how many how many other presidents have successfully nominated a Supreme Court justice nine ten months before before an election and not even being given a hearing. Um, so no, I I think there will be a bit a bit more goodwill from the Republicans, just you know, especially when it comes to Senate, uh, when it comes to cabinet appointments and and various things. But then maybe I'm being the eternal optimist. Maybe lot you know, gridlock will remain. Who knows? I mean, I think that is that is a convenient segue actually. What what do we think Biden's cabinet is going to look like? Because it does strike me that if the Republicans are going to hold the Senate, uh, some progressive picks are probably not going to get through. For example, if Warren were um, one of the candidates for a cabinet position, which I would have said beforehand would have been likely, but as I think Biden will want to throw a bone to the progressives, but... I think he will, but I think he's probably more going to go down the diversity route rather than the political spectrum route. I think you're going to see um, the Biden team touting rather than, look, we've got, you know, members of the Democratic left. Look, we've got Republicans. They're going to say, right, look, look how many women we've got. Look how many people of color we've got. And I think that's going to they're going to try and bring those people on, bring the majority of the American people with them on a on a diversity platform rather than on a policy platform to moving forward, I think. I, I think that this was pretty well represented by like the way that we saw Biden and uh, Kamala Harris using identity politics in uh, in their first speeches after the election results were called. You know, uh, like we had both of them spending several minutes of their speeches talking about how they're family people and you know uh, how important their family is to them. And I that that's I don't think that's a line of rhetoric that's going to sell with any Republicans because let's face it. Uh, Biden's family are seen as a liability, you know, uh, as much as it's as as far like as much as it was, you know, uh, made up. The Hunter Biden allegations still sort of hang over him. They are allegations, correctly or incorrectly. They're still baggage. You're absolutely right. That hang over Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that came through to me on Joe Biden's uh, victory speech, I suppose we could say, 
um, was actually the word unity and being united, how he really wants to try and do that in an America which has become increasingly fragmented under the Trump administration, it seems. Um, yeah, I mean, we've alluded to that already. Biden needs a broad coalition. He needs to, to win those voters over. How does he do that, though? How does he win over people who perhaps um, look up to Trump as representing what they feel America should be? How does then Joe Biden try to win those voters over and say, actually, there's another way that we can we can go? I mean, I think it's a fairly classic victory speech line for any politician, sort of, we're all going to come together now in spite of this election, you know, I'm going to rule for all of you. This will be unity. I think it's a very vague platitude unless we actually get a concrete example of what that means. I'm obviously speaking from what I want uh for what I want, from what I want to happen, but I don't think that uh, Biden's unity platform is going to float, and I think that is something that people further left than him need to take advantage of. Biden is going to have failings; they're going to be big, they're going to be largely caused by instigators from the right of the party or from the from uh, the Republicans, uh, and yeah, so there's going to be a lot of issues he's going to face, and all of that is going to be used as ammunition in 2024. And that's why, you know, we need uh, more progressive and leftist people to be in their first criticizing these mistakes and, I guess, controlling that narrative to make it clear that Biden isn't uh, failing because he's a radical socialist. He's failing because he's a bland centrist who's being used as a sock puppet by the DNC. But is there, is there I'm just going to jump in here, is there an issue with that, Mason, that if I think it's a valid point. Biden's under, under a lot of pressure immediately and and the, things are going to go wrong. It, it happens. But if, if the left within the Democrats then start to attack Biden quite strongly, is there a danger that that could undermine the, the whole victory then and, you know, possibly risk a, a strong Republican Party in 2024 and a weak Democratic one? I, I, so I have a few uh, things to say. Um, <clears throat> firstly, I, I don't think Biden's on the ballot in 2024. Personally, he'll be 82 years old. I think he will be a one-term president. Whether or not, I think he will probably, I think he'll probably do a, a, a Lyndon Johnson and just say he won't, he won't seek uh, the party's nomination. I don't think he's going to resign. I think that would be ridiculous. Um, but also, I think there's something to be said about the fact that the Trump team are being incredibly obstructive. Now they're not allowing any form, any formal transition to move forward. It's going to make it very hard for Biden to get things done in the first hundred days, which is arguably the the most productive legislative period um and but talking about you know if 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 people on the left you know criticizing the democratic party i think it does it does risk um, the republicans coming coming through the middle i mean party unity is is important there is an unanswered question of how do we how do how where is the party unified um but uh you know i i think if you look at the republican party for the last four years they were in lockstep behind trump well the republican party have have largely stayed intact i mean i know trump has been uh, been voted out but they have made gains in the house they've made gain you know they've not lost the senate um and they've managed to get the supreme court looking exactly how they wanted to so i th i think there is definitely something to be seen about unity in some way i don't have the there has to be I an did, extent but... of unity i agree at the same time there has to be a debate too yes and this is politics it doesn't get yes. solved by just sitting around and having a polite conversation yes i agree yeah. And I if I had the answer, I'd be... Yeah. Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, what I'm going to say is that I think even if Biden demonstrates unity within the party, people are going to see the disunity from outside of it. 
Black Lives Matter are going to continue protesting well into a Biden presidency. And that's not something that he can resolve just by uh, having a woman of color as his uh, vice. Absolutely. There's no, I mean, pretending there's unity achieves nothing. That There is actual disunity out there and there are yes. unresolved issues. And unfortunately, the way the American system works is that, you know, as a president, you really are quite hamstrung if you don't have the Senate. You know, Absolutely. if the Senate is not the same party as you, it's incredibly hard to get anything done because the Senate control all of the appoint all of your all of your appointments. Um, you know, obviously any kind of um, Supreme Court picks that you've you got. So and, and obviously progression of any legislation. And so when it comes to like looking back at like, well, has Biden got anything done? It's, it's see how how obstructive the, the Congress is going to be. Uh, but yeah, it's, there's a there's, there's going to be a fight ahead. Now we've gotten rid of the orange man. We've talked about this. Get rid of the orange man, and now we can start talking about we can we can start talking about identity about about the Democratic Party as a whole. What sort of issues then do you think um, Biden Harris will seek to focus on? And and for this one, I mean, let's let's maybe put COVID to one side because it's an obvious one that they need to deal with urgently. Aside from that, um, what major issues do you think Biden Harris um, partnership are going to are going to tackle? Well, the the economic consequences of COVID. I know you said don't talk about COVID, fair, but also the but the economic consequences of COVID. Um, I, I think they're going to be in some ways a, a bit like Obama in his first term. He took office immediately after the the, the GFC and the global economy was moving in our direction. And I think Biden is, is quite lucky in the same way that the economy will recover, you know, slowly or quickly. So he will be able to point to an upward trajectory. And I'd like you to, to point me to an election that wasn't won or lost on issues of the economy. So, you know, if he can point to economic pro- progress, um, reduction in unemployment, um, you know, raise, rises in GDP um, and try to paint. And, and maybe that is a way to get more of a Trump voter on side to, to paint it more of in a rather than like the stock market's doing well. And this is the only barometer I have for success. But like think think about your hip pocket. You know, are you do, do you have more money now? You know, are you better off than you were four years ago, which is what Donald, Ronald Reagan said in uh, mm-hmm. 1984 and one with about 787 electoral votes i think it was um uh, so you know it's um that could be a strategy to bring on those uh those uh non-college educated white uh rust belt voters which he's going to need in four years or kamala harris is going to need in four years or pete Buttigieg or andrew yang or elizabeth yeah. warren or um mason i'm going to come come to something you mentioned you, you mentioned black lives that matter how how do we see that changing going forward? I don't think we're likely to see anything quickly. Like Biden, Biden didn't shy away from acknowledging these issues, but he's definitely been hesitant to sort of say what it is that he wants to do about them. And uh, without control of the Senate, there's going to be limits to what he can do about it. Yeah. So I think. I, yeah. Go ahead. I, no, just and I think it's it's a very double edged sword. I think you're right. He does risk alienating a number of uh, core voters if he starts talking about things like defund the police. I do think that obviously there's a lot that needs to be done with addressing these matters, Black Lives Matter and, and, and you know, racial equality and, and, you know, police brutality, etc. Guns, Second Amendment. God, I could we could do a whole podcast on it. But but I think you've got to, You've got to take enough of the electorate with you. And, and I, I think I can see that I think Biden's strategy is at least thus far, slowly, slowly 
incremental progress rather than like, well, we're going to go all the way over here to the left or we're going to go all the way over there to Trump on the right. Um, I think maybe he's going to try something a bit more, a bit slower, a bit more boring. But uh, maybe boring is good. I mean, when he's trying to court uh, moderate Republicans, it's quite easy to see why he'd distance himself from the defund the police slogan, which, yes. I mean, even though I completely agree with the um, idea behind defund the police, I think there is a better way of selling that policy. Yes, I think I think using the phrase defund is, is not a not a smart choice. Um, you've got to, you know, if you thinking thinking about the police, you know, if you look, think back to like 9-11, right, and you think about New York's finest you know, you think about all these people that, that just, you know, ran into the, those buildings and, you know, just with complete disregard for their own life and just did everything that they could to save as many people as they could. And, you know, sadly, you know, many, many, many of them perished. You know, they are they're, they're a really valued member of, of American society, almost up there with veterans. You know, you would you would you know, you'd see a police officer. People would probably thank them for their service, just like you would somebody who's who's served a tour of iraq or afghanistan um so yeah i think there there is a there's a line to be walked here um of saying well okay we have an issue with this is it retraining is it is it changing some other kind of mechanism structurally within the police but i think demilitarize the police is a slogan i've heard that i think is an important one yeah Yeah. because i think we do need to sort of recognize that you know like if if we if we go for the line of retrain the police uh, we, we, we round up all the police officers and across the entire United States, we put them in one big room and then we give them like a diversity seminar. They're going to tune out. Of course they are. And they're, they're going to see it as liberal propaganda yeah. and then they'll, they'll vote needs, Trump 2024. It needs think, to be specific about if it's reform the police, what reform? It needs to be more specific. If it's I retrain want, the police, retrain them how? I want to pick up on your point on demilitarize the police because... Mm. Um, Obviously, the Americans hold their military in, in massively high regard. Of course they do. But but Americans don't want to see the mili- their own military on their own streets. You yeah. know, we saw we saw this a few years ago when Trump was doing his best to try to get a military parade down um, Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, you know, a.k.a. Russia, North Korea, blah, blah, blah. I think it was um, I think it was actually France that uh, I think he was I think he was inspired by a military parade. Anyway, Macron was t- showing him all of his all of his army's guns. But they. Americans don't want to see their own military at home. Um, so, yeah, I think if there's some way that they can draw that into the argument, it might have it might have some success. I think there could be some tactical ways of using the military comparison, uh, because, you know, obviously America doesn't just sort of turn around and look the other way when um, when a veteran goes postal and starts gunning down civilians. So that is some that that is something that it's very easy to create the argument we should hold the police accountable for the actions they do while on duty. Yes. Uh, we all we also I think also another angle to approach it from is to look at it at a mental health perspective rather than saying you know uh, all cops are bastards cops are under a tremendous amount of pressure and they need to have appropriate training to handle that and to de-escalate situations appropriately. Yeah. Do you remember a few years ago, uh, I think it was 2017 after the London Bridge attacks, uh, Theresa May was criticised in this country for not providing enough funding to police, um, to, for paying paying police officers well And that was well something Labour massively capitalised on yes, in the election. Abs- yes, absolutely. Um, so so it is it is a factor that has broad-based, uh, broad-based uh, political appeal. 
and yeah, but I think that we maybe need to look at training. We need to look at the types of people that are perhaps going into law enforcement. Um, and but just remember the the slogan that the police have, you know, to protect and to serve, um, both of which are a big mm. sort of heartstring uh, words in the American yeah. psyche. I think if we were to round it up, we're not we're we're going to expect nothing too big in terms of police reform from Biden. No. Yeah. Yeah. But then you make an interesting point, mate. So I'm just going to jump in. You make an interesting point, mate, Mason, that this this issue it, it's not just um, it's not just you know demilitarizing the police and taking that power away from them and giving them accountability. But you're right that there's also the other side of your argument that it's also telling people on perhaps the, the left or the far left that you know not all cops are bad. It's about convincing them and trying to pull both sides together to meet in the middle rather than having both sides pushing away, which it seems it has been. Yeah. And to I our think... listeners, I will take this opportunity to plug a previous episode of our podcast. I think it's episode 15, where we talk about how the left can get better at optics, where we address a lot of these issues. Mm. Yes. Yeah, maybe yeah. the maybe the answer is, you know, look at look at the left and the far left. Why, why aren't there? Why aren't these people becoming police officers? You know, if you what what is it about I the mean... police? You know, the, the bringing people together means that you do want to have people from many different walks of life. Uh, in many different jobs and that could be one of the solutions as well. Uh, I think we do sort of need to recognize a sort of under a less visible portion of Trump's voter base this election which has been uh, the I'm I'm gonna say the white suburbanite wine moms who Mm -hmm. don't pay much attention to the news but panic whenever they hear about BLM breaking a window on the other side of the galaxy. Yes. And yeah these are people that uh, I I don't think these people Biden needs to cater to, but they're people that Biden needs to at least play to optically. Yes, yeah, and I and I think the Black Lives Matter movement do need to probably think about how they they do this. You know, I I appreciate that I say this in a very privileged position. I'm a white single. I'm a white middle class heterosexual male. So like, you know, come on now. I'm sorry for what for. For, for making suggestions here, but I think t- looking at those optics, like like they've got in the previous in the previous podcast episode, look at the optics of how this might be perceived from or people from all walks of life. And also, I think there's something to be said for, you know, in four years' time, we don't know what the issues are going to be. We don't know. Maybe there'll be another foreign war. Maybe, you know, there could be anything that we'll talk about. I mean, four years ago, we wouldn't have thought that Trump's re-election campaign would be all about a pandemic. Goodness me. So. There's there there are many unknowns, uh, yeah. which we can't quite I predict think, yet. Yeah, I I I do want to sort of step in and and defend you know BLM for a bit and say that I do think that the majority of them have an amazing grasp of optics. You know, uh, yeah. there are so many videos where you see one person breaking windows or like prying bricks out of the street, and then the other protesters stop them, hand them over to the police, record them doing it, and try to make it as clear as possible that these people are not part of the protests. Yes. I think they do a very good job of separating the instigators from uh, the protesters themselves. And maybe then, maybe then there's a role for for us as journalists in the media to to portray that more successfully. Um, I don't I don't disagree with you, Mason. That I'm sure that that sort of stuff does occur. Um, but I think it it needs to be broadcast uh, in a more effective way into into all four corners of the United States. How do we see foreign policy differing under Biden? Well, a bit of a normalization. First and foremost, I don't think you're going to see any summits with the leader of North Korea. 
um, in the next four years. But I think the biggest question actually is about trust. I think, you know, you, you're going to see Biden rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. You're going to see, the, you know, all of those things that were ripped up under Trump um, sort of done, re- redone. But I think there will be a few people in, in, in different countries who will say, well, you know what? I appreciate you, President Biden. I appreciate what you're saying. But how can I trust that in four years, someone else, some demagogue isn't going to be sit, sat where you are now and, and is going to undermine everything that you're saying? So I think the biggest challenge for Biden, especially in, you know, the Western democracies, you know, the members of the G7, um, you know, our traditional, you know, friends, you know, the UK, France, Germany, you know, Canada, Australia, Japan, etc. You know, I, how can he convince them that American pol- foreign policy moving forward is going to be largely how it has always been, Republican or Democrat? I'm curious you didn't mention Australia or New Zealand there. Is there a reason? I said Australia. Um, but only because, I mean, New Zealand, my my home, I would, I just wouldn't say is a, a, a massive world economy, uh, especially compared to the United States. And give it time. Yeah. Give it time. No, absolutely right. Yeah. And and I don't want to receive any terrible comments uh, <laughs> about, about bad mouthing Arjun's wonderful governor. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, like just just in terms of um, the relationship, New Zealand and and the US have. Have a fairly good relationship. It was it was strained in the 1980s because of New Zealand's nuclear free stance, which in my opinion was was great. They they refused entry um, for a number of nuclear ships into New Zealand ports, and as a result, the, the ANZUS um, alliance was was ripped up. But good on New Zealand for standing firm. I thoroughly thoroughly agree with it. Um, but yeah, getting back to the point, I think trust, long term trust, is is going to be a tough tough sell for a Biden administration. Absolutely. We won't be seeing, seeing the same sort of brinkmanship as we saw between um, Kim Jong-un and Trump and between Xi Jinping and Trump and the likes. At the same time, that doesn't mean, you know, we may be seeing more conventional diplomacy. That doesn't mean there's going to be nothing bubbling below the surface, though. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's not just a comparison to Trump that we need to make here. I think we also need to look at a comparison to Obama because uh, America's got a lot less soft power than it did four years ago. Uh, I don't think there's going to be, it's going to be that effect of trying to build it up. Now that America's no longer an uncontested global hegemon. Uh, there, are, there are other players on the stage now that need to be accounted for. And I think it's going to have, that's going to have to change how America interacts with uh, China, how it interacts with Europe. It's going to change. It's going to change a lot. Who are yes. those other players on the stage? I mean, China's the obvious one. Uh, their economic power is just continuing to snowball. Uh, they've managed to get over the hump on COVID a lot faster than some other countries. And I think both of the. I think both of those things are going to sort of uh, combine to create uh, a much tougher time for America to exert its influence in uh, Asia. Uh, in Europe, like the EU is, current, is currently having its own issues with Brexit and with the countries that are still struggling to get COVID under control. But at the same time, you know, a combined Europe is still a very, is still a very strong economic power. And that's something that Biden will have to play with. I mean, that's that's going to be fascinating, isn't it, to see how a Joe Biden administration interacts with the EU and how it interacts with the UK. That brings us on quite nicely to a point, doesn't it? Because this was something that um, Joe Biden tweeted on September the 16th. He said, we can't allow the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland to become a casualty of Brexit. 
Any trade deal between the US and the UK must be contingent upon respect for the agreement and preventing the return of a hard border, period. What do we make of this? I think that a, a free trade agreement is much, much less likely under under Biden if if the uh, if Northern if the uh, Good Friday Agreement isn't isn't agreed isn't adhered to. Uh, I think we've seen certain departures at number ten this week might make uh, trade negotiations be slightly slightly easier. Um, but but uh, but yeah, we, we can't be having a hard border in 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 the island of, on the island of Ireland. So could. Does, it, does anyone want to have a shot at um, for our non-British viewers explaining what the Good Friday Agreement is? I wouldn't want to be. I wouldn't want to get not. I wouldn't want to sell it short. But but it's by and large the agreement that ended the troubles in Northern Ireland, which was a, a centuries-old struggle between Protestants and Catholics and those who believed that Northern Ireland should be part of the United Kingdom or Northern Ireland should be part of the Republic of Ireland. I don't want to say any more than that. I think that's a pretty good job. I think you've done well there. It's a contentious topic, hence the um, tiptoeing. Indeed. So, But but there was a mechanism put in place in 1998, uh, which has largely seen hostilities cease since. Largely. Yeah, Mason, you were going to make a point. Uh, Over the past week, I have seen some very weird uh, doctored photos going around trying to implicate Joe Biden as like some sort of IRA plant, which has oh, been sake. absolutely hilarious to watch uh, develop. I think speaking of conspiracy theories, I, I do think there's I do think we need to speak about this as well, about Trump's refusal to concede um, and about the rhetoric around, you know, fake voting and electoral fraud and and just how we see this transition period moving forward. How is what's going to happen? Is Trump I mean, Trump's not going to go quietly. But what do people think? How how are the next how are the next eleven weeks going to play out? I think, I mean, I I I actually want to broaden that. But I think we need an entire like uh, discussion on the entire breadth of QAnon and how it's entrenched itself in the American public. Uh, this is something that I've written about, but I think it's also something that you know has a much stronger electoral influence uh, than even I stated then. Because, you know, uh, we talked about how the polls are off. uh, And I think one factor of that, obviously not the only, there are a lot of different things that influence how polls uh, are taken and how they can be made accurate or less accurate, depending on how the data is handled. But I think it's very important to note that uh, depending on who you believe, 20% of people believe in QAnon. And one of the main things that I have seen... Yeah, 20, uh, 20% believe or are receptible to believing it, I believe. I believe that's the source for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I would need, it would, it would take me a couple of minutes to Google up the survey. Uh, yeah. I'll do that after I finish speaking here. Okay. Just, on so, the, just on the Trump point, because um, there's, there's a couple of things here, isn't there? We've got QAnon, which, which I think is fair to look at, and also what Trump is going to do over the next few weeks and how Biden is actually going to be inaugurated in January. I know what's going to happen between them. There's so much. I mean, I don't know how we can predict that. Um, it'll be really interesting to see if Trump, for example, I think if Trump announces that he wants to run again in 2024, that may be seen as a, some sort of con- concession that may be read as that. Whether he will do that this early, I'm not sure. Uh, I, mean, I, I highly anticipate that if Trump does concede in any way, shape or form, 
he will be announcing his candidacy for 2024 on the spot. I completely disagree with you with, with you both, respectfully. I was watching an interview last night with Mary Trump, uh, the the nephew, uh, nephew, the niece uh, of <laughs> nephew. I'm sorry, Mary Trump. Uh, the, the, I'm quite tired. I have a newborn um, uh, uh, on CNN. And and the, the presenter put it to her and said, you know, would Trump run again in 2024? He's constitutionally allowed to, etc. And she said, you know what? I don't think the president will ever put himself in a position again where he can lose as badly as he has. I know he would never admit that publicly, but you, you I don't think Donald Trump doesn't lose in his own mind. Right. So I, so I just I just do not think that that is, is he's going to make that risk. That's not to say that Donald Trump Jr. won't run in 2024 or someone who is similarly inclined, inspired by Trump. But I, I think probably I don't think we're going to see Trump again. Uh, but you're right. In the next 11 weeks, it's going to be quite turbulent. I mean, you've got the, ele- where the Electoral College meet on December 14th, which is when they actually formally cast the votes for president. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if people from the Trump team try to convince specific state legislatures to send alternate slates of electors to, to Washington. You know, you might see them trying to put pressure on the Pennsylvanian state legislature or the Wisconsin or the Michigan state legislature. And then further than that, you've got this, these runoffs in January the 5th. And I think this is why you're seeing a lot of reluctance within a number of Republicans to come out and say, President-elect Biden, It's because they need this base. They need this base to turn out one more time. So mm. maybe maybe it's going to be until maybe it's going to be January 6th, which is when the new Congress um, do uh, ratify uh, the president and vice presidential uh, candidates that we start seeing some some Republicans say, OK, yeah, vice pre- uh, president-elect Biden. Um, and, you know, he's going to be our next president. But, but it's only the 14th of November. We've got quite a bit of time before between now and then. I think that is a point to raise that I don't think Trump would um, possibly run again if he thought there was a serious chance he might lose the renomination. Here's the thing. I think there is a sizable portion of the Republican base that would still vote for him if he ran again. The question is how many obstacles the Republican Party establishment puts in his way. Yeah. And I think he's going to, you know, there are a lot of Republicans who will have an eye on 2024, excuse me, who will probably be thinking, you know what, I'd love to run and I'd love to try to take that Trump base with me. Um, so I mean, can, you know, can, can anyone seriously imagine that Mitt Romney would beat Trump if it came to those two? In a uh, I think Mitt Romney would probably beat Trump in a general. You reckon? In a general. Not in a general, a, yes, yeah, a yeah, primary, yeah. though. Yeah, Republican no, primary. No, certainly not. Not, not. not where it needs to, no. Uh, but equally, I think there'll be, there'll be a number of people on the right of the Republican Party who are thinking, hmm, I'd love to run in 2024. But if Donald mm. Trump was there as well, he, they're not going to want to make an enemy of of Donald Trump, are they, even 100%. in a primary field? So it remains to be seen. But I still I, I still believe that he's not going to he's not going to want to put himself in a position to lose again. Imagine if he lost. Imagine if he ran again and he lost again. Imagine mm. imagine how, how that would ruin his psyche. I mean, he's I been mean, asking is, for all there these is recounts. That, there's also probably a desire on his part to save face. I just if if you look at the if you look at the way that he has conducted business through his whole life, he has cut and run when things got a bit hard. True. And in the, and in the business world, he's been able to do so by declaring bankruptcy and kind of moving forward to the next venture. Right. Whether that's Trump vodka, Trump casinos, completely. 
you can't bankrupting a casino is incredibly difficult literally <laughs> a casino's the point of a casino is to take money from people who come there i, I just just don't the understand the house always wins the house or well unless it's the donald trump casino i just don't understand but but you see what i mean so so if you're if you're looking at the way that he's conducting his business if if it's if it's all gone um, if the presidency is all gone, he's just going to turn to something else. I think he's going to turn to a media empire and he's going to look to have this kind of kingmaker status within the Republican Party. Everyone's gonna be, everybody's going to be courting his endorsement in four years time. People are going to be, you know, his his Twitter, his Twitter feed is going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. yeah. Mason, yeah. Do, you want to, do you want to give us some context on the QAnon stuff? OK, so, yeah, uh, I was able to retrieve the polls that I was remembering. Uh, there are YouGov polls. Uh, so uh, about 50% of the Trump voter base uh, have heard of QAnon. And of those, about 40% believe some version of a QAnon-derived conspiracy. Uh, about half of that believe the entirety of QAnon. So I think this is definitely something that, like, this is definitely something that is going to fester in the Republican Party for a long time. Uh, I think that, you know, it's even possible to make a comparison to uh, the, the the influence of the Confederacy post-Civil War. This mm. is something that is going to follow America for a long, long time. Uh, both this and other movements derived from it, because, you know, QAnon wasn't first. There, there will always be a conspiratorial faction of the Republican Party, and it's going to grow in time, and it's going to grow in influence. Trump supporters actively believe this sort of stuff. It's it's yeah. terrifying, and I think as well that you know the fact that the internet has just given rise to all of this. Anybody with a computer, anybody with a laptop, and 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 a and a and a webcam can can just get on, get online and and start spouting this. I mean, it, it can be used for good, as in the Redaction Politics podcast. I was about to say on that note, but please it can subscribe. Also, yes, yes, of course, please subscribe, like, um, but equally, it, yeah, it can be used. It can be used for ill as well. Hmm. Yeah, I think that is also another point that we need to sort of pivot to. Uh, I think the Democratic Party needs to get better at online engagement. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, QAnon, uh, you know, even if we set the conspiracies aside, perfectly represents how the Internet can be used to rally a voter base. Yeah. I think if the Democrats are able to uh, achieve anything comparable over the next four years, then they'll be able to make gains in 2024. I think the Obama administration revolutionized that back in 2008 when it came to raising money and turning voters out. But I think they were. But I think the Democratic Party has has taken a step back a little bit. So I think, yeah, if you if you can if you can bring that engagement back, maybe get some more of the Obama people back in who who did this. I mean, they're probably they're probably old now. They're probably 35. Um, but uh, you know, I say this as a 34 year old. Um, but uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Mason. Those yeah, there are fun. I think the moment we all knew Obama was going to win a second term was that 10 second clip on YouTube of him trying to dunk a cookie into a mug of milk, discovering it was too big and then saying, thanks, Obama. Yeah. <laughs> that was when that was when we knew he was getting four more years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I have to say, though, um, I, I don't know what you guys think. And may, maybe um, maybe you won't like this, but I, I do think that with with Joe Biden, he he just come across as a as a likable fellow. Like when when I listen to him, oh, yeah, of course. when he speaks, he he's obviously older, and and I think he think he looks older than Trump as well, in my view. And I think that that comes across as almost like a 
a sort of sage kind of wisdom kind of vibe. He's done but some he's, hard work well, in his life. Seems kind of, yeah, but he seems quite quite humble and quite uh, just sort of down to earth. And you know, obviously he's very well trained. He's, he's a veteran, you know, politician. But there's something likable about the guy. Oh yeah, yeah for I, sure. I, I do think that you know, I I think sometimes he has it, and sometimes he just really absolutely does not. Right. Uh, for every clip I've seen where he's, you know, like perfectly maneuvered his way through a situation, there's another one where he just completely like stumbles and then falls flat on his face. The one that will always stick in my mind was a clip uh, of like, uh, I believe it was him giving a speech at some, uh, I, I assume it was some sort of uh, movement for uh, people with disabilities. And just at some point, like partway during the test shoot, he walks up to a child in a wheelchair and pats them on the face. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, like there's some sort of house pat. And yet, <laughs> and yet Trump can mock a disabled reporter publicly and not lose any votes. It's, it's amazing how that, uh, yeah, how that can be contrasted. But you're yeah. right, Mason, like you, you will remember that. And that's the one that we played over and over again well, mom- on TV. Yeah. And, yeah. Moments like that are always more of a liability for centre-left politicians than they are for centre-right. Yeah. Always on both sides of the Atlantic. Absolutely not just on oh. both sides of the Atlantic, all around the world, I think. Yeah. But on Biden, on Biden's um, sort of, uh, we have seen times in when he's been giving speeches when he, he's almost sort of stammered. He's almost struggled to get the words out. And, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe he did have a stammer when he was a child. Am I right in believing that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I believe he does have a stammer. It does seem to have been exacerbated uh, yeah. over the past year. I think that it is something that uh, with the right groups can be played to his benefit because I think that, you know, there is something uh, inspirational about somebody who has a speech defect being able to be so as eloquent as he is able to yeah. present himself. Channel, channel, his inner, channel his inner Winston Churchill or his inner King George VI. Well, it just makes it more normal, doesn't it? You know, yeah, every, everyone has these, everyone has things that, you know, that aren't perfect about them. And, and for, some, for a politician to become president with that, it just makes him so much more relatable. He's mind. also got a good story. You know, the fact that, you know, he, his children said, you know, his wife sadly died and his child yeah. in, a, in a car accident when he was about to be inaugurated as a senator and how he became a single dad and how he, you know, how he triumphed over adversity. You know, and conversely, in Trump, you've got somebody who was given a million dollars by his dad and, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, kind of lambasted his way from failed business to failed business. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, few years ahead. At the same time, you know, politically active people can't get bogged down at that. We have to talk policy. Yes, yeah. we do. But, you know, it, obviously, electorally, it's important that people are able yeah. to sell themselves to. Yeah. And I suppose but the here, election's over now. Yeah, absolutely. And here mm. we pivot to governing. Governing's a lot less. Governing's not as sexy, um, but it's of course not. but it but you have but an ability to. Well, it depends to make, who does it. Well, sure, but you have an ability to make more of a difference, don't you? Because of course, you know, as a, I mean, a West Wing episode saying that you know I I'm not a big fan of I'm not a big fan of running for election. Why are you not a big fan of running? Because it takes away from helping takes away time from helping. So mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing to remember that this is why we elect these people to try and make people's lives better. So I think that's a good pivot back to what we were talking about, about the Good Friday Agreement mm-hmm. and about uh, Biden's stance on that, because to give us some perspective, we talked about what the Good Friday Agreement is vaguely already. Uh, the controversy for our international viewers who aren't aware is that 
a potential exit from the EU could threaten the Irish peace process and could threaten the Good Friday Agreement, especially if there were a hard border put up on the island of Ireland in the event of a no-deal Brexit. What can Biden actually do beyond no. threatening to um, uh, not provide a free trade agreement? What, what could he do to intervene in the um, in the run up to that? Well, he can put pressure on. I mean, he can make it pretty clear to the UK that it's not going to be acceptable under his administration. Um, and, you know, the, the special relationship can be can be threatened. And, you know, I know, especially on this side of the Atlantic, every occupant of number 10 has been very keen, at least in recent times, to to put their arm around who is ever in the white, whoever's in the White House, whether you've got Tony Blair and, and George Bush or, you know, you've got, you know, David Cameron and Barack Obama uh, and, and Johnson and Trump now. Um, so I don't think you're going to see any different when when Biden's in the White House. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, no deal Brexit's going to happen maybe on the 31st of December. It's 21 days before Biden even gets inaugurated. So, you know, there's not he's not going to be this savior of of of, uh, of no deal Brexit. He's not going to come on in his big red, white and blue horse and save the day for everybody. Well, exactly. Yeah, he does have that that, you know, he, he does have the ear of the British Prime Minister, doesn't he, at all times. And whatever his views are on that, he has that influence, which very few of us will have. He does. And it's important as well. You know, a lot of the Brexiteer argument has been, you know, well, if we turn our back on Europe, it's OK, because, you know, we're going to have America. You know, we're going to be able to make a free trade deal with, you know, with America. And then you had hmm. Trump and you had Trump signaling that, you know, Brexit was a good idea and, you know, it'd be open to free trade, etc. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful that maybe there'll be a bit more of a of a pivot back uh, towards sensibleness. Yeah. Of course, one of the um, prospects floated by some Brexiteers is uh, that of Kanzuk, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, closer union of Canada, Australia, the UK and New Zealand. But I believe we're going to be saving that for another podcast. Yeah. And I'll just say one thing, as much as I would love to have freedom of movement between my country of birth and my in my the country i live in etc and i think it would be great um i but i i don't think it would be a good substitute you know i think it, it could be a thing that we could have as well um but uh maybe not uh, in 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 place of yeah um shall we, we we we've talked about the you know the the election in the us shall we slightly move on to some stories in the uk uh this week just to just to finish um who wants to start two words dominic goings (laughs) let's give some context um okay so where to begin um (laughs) dominic cummings was the uh was the architect of the vote leave campaign uh and managed to make his way into the uh the um into boris johnson's inner circle chief strategist advisor um has not been without controversy throughout his entire political career just a few highlights from this year it's only you know during lockdown he was found out that he drove what 250 miles from london to durham um and then to barnard castle to test his eyesight despite the fact that we weren't allowed to to be traveling at all for, you know, for international viewers for some context there london to durham is almost the entire length of england yes if you wish uh, to get more details, open your search engine of preference and type in "come gate." <laughs> no, for real, that's what that's what was trending at the time. Yeah, and and but most, <laughs> but more importantly, you know what he he was. Everybody was calling for him to resign. Uh, well, 
every, everyone apart from you know conservative MPs, uh, and he just was a you know one rule for for hit them and and another for for the rest of us. Um, he's decided to to leave now. So, um, and uh, but uh, it, it was yeah it was very sad to see all of the conservative MPs just line up behind Dominic Cummings. He he certainly was very good at message discipline. I think he arguably won the 2019 general election for Boris Johnson by making him say get Brexit done, get Brexit done as over and over again as much as possible. But uh, yeah, he appears to be going out the door. Well, I mean, yeah. he literally did walk out the door, didn't he, with his uh, with a little cardboard box and a, there was a photographer there to take a Incredibly photo. Incredibly staged, um, let's face it. Dominic yes, Cummings I mean, wanted that to happen. Oh, he knows I, how Dominic Cummings knows how to manipulate the media. I think even I think even, you know, losing his job at this point in time was part of his plan, since I don't believe he planned to hang around beyond the end of this year. Uh, I, I, I expect, you know, like. He, he's gotten everything. He's gotten everything that he wants out of Johnson. Why would he stick around? Yeah, and I don't see Johnson sticking. I don't see Johnson staying in 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 that in the position uh, very much Agreed. longer. I think, uh, especially I think now be, without Cummins. Cummins. I think he'll be gone by the end of next year. I think sooner. With, with Cummings, I think the, the issue is obviously he's unelected, and that that's a that's a big thing which I think frustrates a lot of people. The fact that he was after. The issue with lockdown when he broke the, the rules for lockdown and then he was in the rose garden which is the the garden at downing street where the prime minister lives uh, answering the press the fact that we saw him leave the front door of 10 downing street which is traditionally where we see the prime minister standing there's there's it seems to me there's a sort of there's a power struggle going on there um, a very visible one and i think that annoys and frustrates a lot of people Probably frustrates the prime minister. Obviously, I can't speak for him, but probably does frustrate him too to see that. Yeah, uh, but then I think about Boris Johnson is he's he's not. I don't think has any. He has no particular convictions, right? He just goes with whatever the political winds are, whichever way the political winds are blowing. Um, and and in some in a lot of ways, it's it's been successful for him. I mean, he's not. He wouldn't become prime minister without it. Uh, but I think yeah, it's going to be interesting now to see what happens that he he doesn't have this militant advisor standing behind him making sure that uh, the right things are done and said at the right time does it does it suggest a potential change of direction for the way in which the party uh, well both the party and the government are going to go it may do i i'm a bit more doubtful uh i think i i, th I think you know like the the course of the government is set by more than one person uh, you know, not even not even the prime minister or the spin doctor controls everything, and there are still a lot of other people with the same allegiances, and they're still going to be aligning the party in the same direction for the same goals. Mm. Yeah, and it and it will also remain to be seen that uh, you know if you get rid of the conservative quote boogeyman, will that help the conservatives electorally uh, at least in the short term? Maybe it will. Uh, but then we're still, we're still four and a bit years away from the next general election. So anything that happens now is going to pale into insignificance in four years time. I mean, that is a good point that, you know, Dominic Cummings is not a popular figure with the public, especially after the Barnard Castle debacle. Hmm. No, but on that point as well, he, I think one thing that people sort of, it seems to be forgotten in the, in the sort of mainstream conversation about this is that he, he is an intelligent guy. You know, he he For sure. didn't get to where he is without oh, yeah. without intelligence, without without connections, and and it, it does remain to be seen what he'll do after this. You know, mm -hmm. where will he go? I'm I'm sure there'll be a role for him somewhere, whether that's in the Conservative Party or elsewhere. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find the way to face this. It doesn't make it sound like we're in some sort of political drama, but Cummings knows where the bodies are buried. Yeah. And yeah. all of those bodies are going to be a few years old by the time the next election comes around. So letting him go at this point might save out on a lot of future hurt because any dirt that he could hypothetically drop, uh, even if he hasn't already been like uh, brought into silence, is going to be largely irrelevant by the time it matters. Yeah, and it also it remains to be seen. I mean, the, the Brexit negotiations are still ongoing. You know, the, there's still a chance there will be a deal with the EU before the 31st of December. I personally don't think there will be, but but you know, it's interesting to see Cummings leave now. You know, six weeks before, and and what does that what does that signal? Does that signal he doesn't have any faith in the process anymore? Or does that signal he's already got what he's wanted, what he wants? He's already he really believes there's going to be a no deal Brexit. I mean, how 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 this plays out even I in the mean, next what, few what weeks? Did coming did coming jump coming jump or was he pushed? He, well, there's been there have been reports that he's quit, but there have also been reports that he was pushed. There were other reports mm. that he's going to be working from home quote until the end of the year. Uh, I mean, there are many unanswered questions. I think we should mm. uh, try and uncover. Yeah. Mm. There, there are just so many different things that could be at work here. You know, uh, for, for all we know on the outside, he has transferred his soul into a new mortal vessel and is using his old one as a fall guy. Yeah, well, certainly going to be interesting. I mean, I think the government does seem to be in a little bit of turmoil at the moment, especially with, with Brexit is coming on. There's no deal yet. Um, you know, we've had this this sort of erupt this week. It's It's not a good look, is it, for the Conservatives at the moment? And yet they're still ahead in certain polls and tied with Labour and other ones. So, I mean, I think I think that does nicely um, again, once again, nicely lead us on to another point in this podcast, which was um, what can Keir Starmer learn from Joe Biden? Especially, like you say, I mean, the Conservatives are still ahead in the polls. There was a point at which Labour had caught up, but it looks like that um, that tie may be slipping now. Broad based appeal. Three words. Agreed. I mean, Keir Starmer said that himself. Yeah. But this is a point I wanted to raise at the time, which is I think there is is a difference between a broad coalition approach and a running to the centre approach. Yes. I I, I think the thing that... And I think the latter is what Keir Starmer more seems to be, from where I'm sitting, more looks like he may be headed, which I think would be a mistake. I mean, one thing that Joe Biden got right was that he kept the left on side. Yeah. I think the moral of the story for Starmer should be uh, don't conduct some Stalinist purge where you line all of your political opponents up against a wall and then kick them out of your party. Though I do think in the case of Jeremy Corbyn, he did need to make some visible statement about the anti-Semitism issue in the Labour Party. Plus, let's face it, I mean, whatever your opinions on Jeremy Corbyn, his response to the EHRC report was quite tone deaf. Indeed. Mildly. So while I completely agree, James, you know, broad-based appeal, perhaps without running to the centre, I do think there is, there are a couple of people probably do need to be made examples of in that case, because anti-Semitism was a huge strain on the Labour Party at the door, on the doorstep um, in the last election. Plus, even with a lot of people like myself who were uh, largely on board on policy with what was proposed in 2017 and 2019, let's face it, Jeremy Corbyn was deeply unpopular with the public. Yes. Mm. Very, so can, very toxic figure. So if he can sell some of those those similar policies, you know, a national education service, you know, um, there were a num- number of very popular um, 
you know increased funding for the NHS you know just things which need to be need to be done um, to improve people's lives and livelihoods in this country you know the expansion of the middle class and you know pe- talking to people in in, in these industrial um, working class towns and making sure that they've they've got purpose and you know jobs and you know livelihoods just to jump in a bit let, let's give a bit of context so james you mentioned the the ehrc report let's just yes. for people who are not familiar with it let's just say a bit about that okay so the equality and human rights commission is what ehrc stands for it's a body in the uk that the clues in the name it inv- it can um investigate and regulate equalities and human rights issues in certain bodies recently that was the labor party in the in the labor party the ehrc launched an investigation was it last year or the year before it announced it was launching its investigation anyway its report was recently published and it found that labor had unlawfully discriminated against jewish people and obviously this has been a massive deal with the new leadership in place i mean a lot of the blame for the anti-semitism crisis was placed at the feet of jeremy corbyn and keir starmer is now like you say he's attempting to make an example especially of corbyn and attempt to bring uh, bring a whole bunch of people back on side but then it is a risk because there are a number of of labor voters who are very much aligned uh, to jeremy corbyn on the left and is going to alienate them i mean i I know one one criticism that always got wheeled out against corbyn supporters is that he seemed like a some sort of cult of personality and i don't think a lot of his supporters are doing themselves any favors in making their fight about jeremy corbyn himself rather than about trying to lobby Starmer on policy. Yes. Mason, you were going to make a point? Yeah, uh, I think that, yeah, I think that uh, one, one, one thing that's sort of gone uh, uncovered by Starmer uh, that I know a lot of people have walked out of the party over is the labor leaks. There are a lot of people who have seen, you know, uh, the, the, the clipped WhatsApp conversations and the email records uh, and, you know, uh, have a firm and entrenched belief that the labor right is unified in a grand movement to expunge them and anyone who has leftist beliefs. And I think that is something that Starmer needs to cut off at the head. I think Starmer needs to take much stronger action on showing that, you know, it isn't just a centrist labor, it is a unified labor. Yes. And that's and that's the only way you win, you know, with unity, I mean. You know, if you I mean, look, at the, look at the Conservative Party, for better or worse, they are unified. Well, they were at least in 2019 unified, and they won a thumping majority. I mean, the Conservative Party has always been very good at adapting and surviving. Um, well, I, I'd refer people regarding the Labour situation there to a, another previous episode of our podcast where we talked about um, the decline of the left. We did a small series on it, and one episode of which we talked about the Labour Party. And it's a point I raised is that. Over the last couple of decades, that traditional um, Labour coalition has been fragmenting. Yes. Do watch it. Indeed. I'm not going to spoil any more because I want you to go and watch it. Yes. Um, OK, well, we've we've talked about the, the US election today. We've we've had a bit of discussion on Dominic Cummings, the recent news. Um, I think that's a good place for us to start start winding down for, mm-hmm. for today. So. Thank you very much for, for tuning in, whether you're listening to the podcast or watching us on YouTube. Um, it's always great to, to have you with us. Um, leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. 
If you have any opinions on what we've spoken about, how do you think Joe Biden's going to get on? Let us know. Um, so that's it from me. I've been Declan Carey in this episode. And thank you very much for me and from our guests. And I'm sure we'll see you next time too. Cheers, guys. Thanks for joining.